the incomparable. Number 446, February 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're going to be talking... It's a book club episode. The book club is here to talk about 2002's Pattern Recognition, a classic, um, sort of science fiction, sort of not, uh, novel by William Gibson, the the great writer, great novelist, great science fiction writer. Um, and I always tell people... Uh, who know about William Gibson from Neuromancer, his uh, his 1984 multi-award-winning best-selling novel that maybe my favorite William Gibson novel is actually uh, Pattern Recognition from 2002. And a bunch of people agreed with me, and uh, that pleased me. So now we're doing a podcast with them about this book, which hopefully you have read or will read after you listen. Uh, let me introduce my panelists, who are all cool finders in their own way. Anthony Johnston is here. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Jason. I'm looking forward to discussing lots of long chain monomers. Uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser is here. I hope she doesn't make any jack moves. <laughs> I have a Jill face. <laughs> Monty Ashley took a duck in the face at 250 knots. No, he didn't, but he's here. Hello. <laughs> it takes forever to grind the the Levi's logo off one of those buttons. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. And uh, he hasn't been on in a while, but he's here now. It's Fred Keish. Hello. Hello. I took an espresso with a couple of pink lasagnas, so I'm ready to roll. <laughs> All right. Uh, pattern recognition. Like, I, I had the moment where I'm like, I don't even know how to how to dive into this thing. It is the first in what turns out to be a three-book set that is loosely connected through one character, uh, which is, and I'm going to pronounce it in the humorous way, which is Hubertus Big End. Although it is... Correct. It is... <laughs> it can also be pronounced in a more frenchified way because he's belgian um but uh the big end trilogy but that really are only loosely connected by blue ant the company that big end uh runs and the main character of this is case pollard by the way yes this is the second novel by william gibson with (laughs) a uh protagonist named case (laughs) but this is Mm c-a-y-c-e and uh, neuromancer is c-a-s-e case pollard is a cool finder. She is a marketing consultant who essentially is shown marketing things and through a process that is entirely in the sort of back of her mind, uh, she will say yes or no. And that is her job. It is a super weird job. She's allergic to branding. She is deathly allergic to the Michelin man. Well, the, the original Michelin man to be specific, Yes, who is absolutely terrifying yes oh yes never seen the original one go and look him up because he is appalling call him bebendum say his name that's right he is yes and he is coming to destroy us all um (laughs) gozer style i think um uh so so she is uh working uh for blue ant and big end and uh, consulting with some awful people about their latest branding for their their product and uh, she's also a fan of something called the footage where she and other people go on the internet to something that is sort of like what we would now have as a subreddit but back then it was a a specific forum about the footage the footage being a series of video clips that are uh, seemingly randomly uh, released and nobody really knows what they're part of if they're part of a larger something or whether they are just random random clips but an entire subculture has built up on the internet around uh, the the release of the footage so she's a so there's an internet 
internet fandom aspect. And then uh, she begins investigating the source of the footage at the prodding of Big End. And that leads her on a whole kind of adventure uh, as she as she moves from hotel to hotel around the world in a series of increasingly uh, and also a, a friend's house that's largely empty uh, in a series of increasingly uh, lonely <laughs> spaces the mm-hmm. K- case pollard spends a lot of time alone in this book it was actually one of the things that i i had, had not remembered about it is mm-hmm. this is a book written by somebody who's been on a book tour or five in his life <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's all about liminal spaces about who are you when you're in a series of liminal spaces yeah well liminal spaces too right right well you're on the precipice of something new but but um i just this is this book is so good at depicting like the utter barren loneliness of an international business traveler and i had forgotten Mm -hmm. just how good it is at that oh yeah it's amazing Mm -hmm. it's also manages to be i mean you called it a sort of semi-science fiction novel and that's one of the things i love about it i'm a you know we're all big gibson fans here and i agree Mm -hmm. with you that this is in neuromancer is kind of sui generis it's hard to topple that just because it was such an amazing debut but apart from that this is my favorite gibson book and one of the reasons why is it's the first one that wasn't a science fiction book and yet it feels like a science fiction book every molecule in this book feels like an sf book and yet it's not it's so and it still feels like an sf book reading it now it's so bizarre i feel like big end is kind of a visitor from 2019 in a lot of ways <laughs> so i reread pattern recognition while i was flying home from a cross country trip after sp- having spent two day- two weeks in a series of, of liminal places and my mom who was my seatmate leaned over and she's like what are you reading cuz it was it's it's weird and inaccessible if you are just like dropping in on sp- specific sentences but when I and and again, pattern recognition is the perfect book to read while you're traveling because you will mm. just drop right into the groove. And then I read it again a couple of weeks ago, and all of the debates that they're having about how about how people how how do you regard how do you regard history? How will you be regarded? How do people pay attention? Um, what is the difference between the truth and a marketable meme? And I thought to myself, Big End is living in 2020 while the rest of this book is set in 2003. It has a, it has a real, it had a real, it, it feels untethered from the present day in a way that good science fiction does. Yeah, you know? I, I feel like it's written like it's speculative fiction. Like mm-hmm. when he's describing the message boards, he goes into the kind of detail that you get in a science fiction book where they feel the need to tell you, you know, how the guy gets into his bubble car. and <laughs> But it's really a period piece because all this stuff is actually obsolete now. And it and it was it had already been around for a while when he wrote the book as well. There's a spot where he sa- the narrator makes a point to say and the computer has a cable modem so it's always connected to the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're like uh yeah, I've got like eight things always connected to the internet like on me right now but it's still and so is my doorbell (laughs) yeah but it's still written like it's about the future so it still feels it's still got that science fictional tone i feel like part of it is too is the whole point to case is that um 
since she is allergic to branding, and she's actually allergic to design that can be tied to a specific place or a specific trend. Like Gibson goes into so much detail on the objects that he clearly fetishizes as being <laughs> transcendent, you know, like they transcend time and space, and they, they simply exist as avatars of excellent design. I mean, we can talk about the Bugs Rickson jacket, which is, which is one thing, but there's skirt thing, which is this black jersey tube that she wears all sorts of different ways, Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, <laughs> there's the cowboy hat that Big End can't wear correctly, but Case recognizes as iconic, and then figures out the way to, to showcase it the best way. And the first, you, you can always, you can kind of tell that Boon Chu is going to be a bad guy just because Case notices the details on his um, bag and his coat, but for kind of the wrong reasons. But this is something that he returns to again and again, is he loves those weird little calculators that were made in the concentration camp. And he uh, finds tremendous resonance in uh, the, 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 the haircuts that you see in Russia. Like when she goes to Russia, she, 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 she's just, wow, design everywhere. And I think that's part of it is, too, is he's kind of saying he's arguing that good design pulls you out of time because it is in yeah. some measure timeless. I think he's opposed to brands unless it's a brand he likes, in which case, oh, it's special and better <laughs> than the other brands. Yeah. How many times does he mention Buzz Rickson in this book? That's the, oh, yeah. bra- that's, the, that's the whole point of the branding experience, though, is that you automatically prioritize your brands over other ones and argue that other brands shouldn't count. Apparently, there was not a Buzz Rickson jacket in the color that Case is wearing. There wasn't it a black one, no. Well, and they, they wrote him and they're like, why did you write about this jacket we don't make? People yeah. are asking and they, about so they, this so jacket. So they made it. That's the best yeah. part, though, is so they made it <laughs> yeah. because it's in the book. Yeah. I have actually done Case Pollard cosplay as accurate as I could. Uh, Not with a skirt. I went with black jeans, but I did actually grind off the uh, Levi's logo, which Uh takes forever if if you're just using a regular Dremel tool. Oh, that was my next question, was if you took it to a a person who cut a locksmith. A a Korean. No, I did it all myself. Uh And then... I was not allowed into the cosplay lounge at a Comic-Con because people did not think I was wearing a costume. (laughs) Because I was dressed as basically... Generic clothes. Yes. Yeah. There's an interesting meditation to be had because you read this book now in an age where you've got like the Allbird sneakers and the Rise of Everlane and all of these other direct-to-consumer brands that advertise exclusively through Instagram or through word of mouth on the web. They don't have retail experiences and they're all promising quote unquote elevated basics. And I just want to know if like an entire generation of clothing entrepreneurs all read pattern recognition and were like that we're going to do that except cashmere that we're going to do that except eco that we're doing that except pastel <laughs> except we're definitely putting our logo on stuff. Yeah. Well, if you look at what some of the uh, advertising was done in the book mm-hmm. where you had the people going around the bars and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's pre Reddit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's what Reddit does. That's astroturfing. That's, uh, the, yep. that's absolutely, it's marketing, like buzz marketing mm-hmm. going it's on there. It's the precursor before, to Instagram influencers. Yeah. Before yeah. It, was a, it was a term. I think one of the interesting things about Case, and this is my theory about, uh, the book's relationship with brands and her relationship with brands, maybe not William Gibson's relationship with, with branding and marketing, is, you know, the theme of this book, obviously, is pattern recognition. Like, th- it's in the title, people. This is all about <gasps> humans mm-hmm. and our ability or, you know, to find um, signal in noise, even if it's not there, which is which is part of the theme of the book that we'll get to. And the way I've always read Case's sensitivity to brands and her job is that... She doesn't want to wear or see stuff. She's she's in her comfort zone where her brain is not processing things. She she's choosing things that her brain 
basically overlooks. Whereas when she's working, they're showing her branding and it it is being processed by whatever magic cool findingness that she has in her head. So I've always taken it that that you know when she's off the clock, she really mm-hmm. doesn't want to be um, be uh, uh, you know, have these brands forced on her, and that's why she wears all the you know localist clothes and all of that. Is like it's like her little vacation. It's the stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. set her off more than it is like not. I mean, Gibson may think yes, these are the these are the designs that I like and they're cool and that's why they're okay. But I think in the books world, it's because they don't set her off. That she she doesn't read them. She doesn't seek patterns in uh, you know through the loom shirts and Levi's, so they're okay. Well, she's very much like a lot of other actual fashion designers and other creative professionals that way because that's one thing that you notice persistently is with people who make clothes and set trends for a living maybe not detect them but set trends is they all basically have uniforms like alexander wang has not changed mm-hmm. his hair in 20 years he's always in a black t-shirt and black pants lagerfeld at least lagerfeld looks good not isaac rahi boring <laughs> also uh I'll, I'll point out because it is related and it's in the text too uh steve jobs was like that johnny ive is like yeah. that and one of johnny ive's designs features prominently in this book which is there's a lot of the words cube. devoted to the g4 cube <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is sort of a science fictional computer even now when you think about I feel like it this raises kind of an interesting question when you pull pattern recognition into the present which is like back in 2002 we were just on the edge of a lot of um your tech can be used used as an accessory in a status. I mean, it was right on the edge of all those different colored iPods and and the the really splashy campaigns where and fashion was doing a lot of aggressive differentiation. We're in such a different moment now where everybody has also embraced this idea of, oh, if I have a uniform, I reduce my cognitive static and can spend my mm-hmm. time thinking big thoughts. If there were to be a Case Pollard today, would she be as relentlessly devoted or would it be something completely different? Because the point to Case is to discover cultural undercurrents that other people haven't hit yet. Also, the the the, G, the G4 cube was already obsolete in the book, which I like because if you ever read those um, the the Elizabeth Solander books, the, uh, the, the guy who wrote those was uh, an obsessive Mac user and he kept detailing the specs that were state of the art at the time that he wrote them. Uh, and I think <laughs> this is what separates Gibson from a writer like that is that Gibson puts in the G4 cube because it's interesting and has one of the characters holding on to it because it's interesting, even though it's obsolete. And that is a funnier, m- more clever spin on the tech kind of tech porn aspect of it, which uh, I makes me laugh now and made me laugh then. It's like those calculators where we never oh, really yeah. learn if it's a good calculator or fast to use, but it's really, really neat. And that's all you re- all you need. Yeah, the elements that really date it, I think, are things like her using internet cafes and everybody's incredulity at you could there's you can just upload this video onto the web. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> well, you know, why would you talk to that, strangers? Right, but that's about what I mean. Yeah. Those are the oh, bits that date it. But things like the cube, even though as Jason says, it was already obsolete by the time the novel came out. The way that they're treated, I think, yeah, that doesn't date it. It's the, it's more that unusually for Gibson, it's more the behavioural aspects of it in ways that uh, that date the book. Time to take a break so I can tell you about our first sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Linode. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD-based server in the Linode cloud, and you can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro resources and node location. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers, all taken care of by an incredible 24-7 support team. 
If you ever run into any problems, just drop them an email, give them a call, or even chat over IRC in the Linode community if that's easier. Whatever suits you, they have ways to help you and some super useful guides and support documentation so you can just look something up quickly and move on. They've got a new management panel now in beta, cloud.linode.com. Even I can use it. I am not super comfortable maintaining a Linux system, and yet I can do it in a snap. It's a single-page application built using React.js, backed entirely by a public API. It's open source. It's awesome. And you can use it to control your server. And they've got two-factor authentication to keep you and all of your data safe and secure. Linode has pricing options to suit everyone. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for just $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans too. And they've got a special offer just for you because you listen to The Incomparable. Go to linode.com slash snell. That's my last name. And use promo code SNELL2019. You'll get $20 toward any Linode plan. And do the math on that one gig of RAM plan that I mentioned. That's four free months. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee. So you have nothing to lose. Give Linode a try today. That's linode.com slash SNELL. Promo code SNELL2019. To learn more, sign up and make the most of that $20 credit. Thank you to Linode for supporting The Incomparable. So one of the things I noticed about this book, it reminded me a whole lot of um, Count Zero in a couple different ways. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it, and I think count zero is where I, I f- first, if it, it first twinked me that Gibson's a clothing person, mm-hmm. one of the threads through count zero, which is the middle book of the cyberspace trilogy that he wrote. Um, one of the threads includes a disgraced art dealer who has been commissioned by a reclusive billionaire with a weird personal life um, to <laughs> find out who the artist who's making these fantastic, beautiful collages are. And he gives her a giant chunk of change. And one of the first things she does is goes and buys a shirt for a friend. And Gibson spends like three or four sentences describing this this gray flannel shirt that may or may not have ever actually existed in the world. But by the time he was done, I wanted the shirt. Like, <laughs> it just sounds beautiful. And again, the whole thing is about this, this person whose whole life is aesthetics being tasked by a rich person to solve a mystery. And at the end of her arc in Count Zero she figures it out. She has a moment of connection with the artist in question and has a beautiful relic to take away from it. And so what I found particularly touching about pattern recognition is the way this theme is returned to, but it is so much more emotionally freighted this time. It's like, it's it's a more mature author, author who seems to have a lot more compassion than he did as a younger man, because there's just a lot of emphasis on um, people's desire to connect with one another, what it means to be lonely, what it means to try to create connections and to try to get over the, the things in your nature that that may be making you unhappy that like you're aware of, but still can't can't struggle with. So I think I also find this book really gratifying because it's always great to see an author kind of take take the the core of their work and then blow it apart and make it prettier, you know? Well, and t- it, uh, what a what a departure from his comfort zone too. After seven novels that he had written or co-written uh, that are all set in either you know the one steampunk and then the rest of them in the future in science a science fictional future, to take the leap of faith to use his science fiction skills to write a book set in more or less the present day. And yeah, it still feels like a William Gibson novel, but that was. You know, he's gone on to do that multiple times, but that was the first time. And I'm sure it was kind of terrifying in some ways. And uh, it works. It totally works, which is part of the part of the amazing thing about it. I I believe the backstory here is that he was um, 
working on this and kind of stuck and um september 11th happened and then he really didn't know what he was going to do and he ended up integrating it in you have this whole thing about how case's father disappeared on september 11th and and he was in manhattan but he had no reason to be by the world trade center but they didn't really know and they were trying to figure she's trying to figure that out and her mother has gone to a hippie commune in hawaii where they are listening to static trying Mm -hmm. to listen to yeah listening to static on a radio and stuff like that to try and again seek that's that's there's your uh, symbolism right she is literally looking for patterns in noise in order to get a message from her husband and the idea of the randomness of how was he there on that day when he had nothing planned like how did he end up there that that aspect of it and that gave gibson a thing to connect to which mm-hmm. was to make this a post 9-11 set story and um i like that stuff in the book i like i like the wistfulness i i feel like case's um mourning that she's still in mm-hmm. really adds to the loneliness of her moving through all of these hotels and her her friend the music video director's apartment in london and and her international flights and all of the loneliness of that i feel like it is amplified by that layer of sadness that she's got not just that her father has has probably died but that they don't have any uh any closure they don't have any details they they, it is not known whether he died or not um and and uh I, i think that's an interesting thing to revisit in 2019 and and think about uh how much closer this book was to to 9-11 and that how it's such a big part of the book well this book actually came out two years after my dad died and uh, i remember reading through it the first time and one of the things that struck me was um how authentic the experience of of the way he wrote her grief as as this kind of submerged thing that she kind of moved around um it felt very true to experience into your life. Um, one of the metaphors I used to use when I was trying to explain to, you know, friends how, how flippin' weird it is for like the first year or two after somebody you love dies very suddenly, as I said, well, it's like this big glass wall has slammed down around me and I can see the life that I used to have and the world I used to live in, but I'm not in it anymore and I can't reach out, I can't touch it, I can't get back to it, I'm just moving through it. And the first time I read this book, it's like cases moving through that cases rolling around in that impenetrable glass hamster ball too (laughs) i really appreciated how there's that that quality where you know you're disconnected from everything but you have no idea whether you're ever going to be connected again and again and and i feel like again this points to gibson maturing through his work as well as is the whole point of the book is by the end of it she has a visceral understanding of the types of connections people have to one another and she's forged a really significant one for herself um and she's also managed to survive a couple betrayals because there's a real there's like a really big one in the book that that takes place and um which I, I was when I read it, I'm like, eh, really, it's a little, little soap opery. But you know, I, I think it, I, I'm like, well, it kind of works. It cracks the bubble, as it were, and um, it, it provides dramatic tension. But yeah, it's it's a great book for for because it captures that isolation so well, and also kind of provides a roadmap of the experience. So I appreciate that. Just to go back to what Jason was saying about. Um this being his first non-science fiction book as well. I actually, I mean, 9-11, he said, played a big part in it, but uh, I think he was planning, maybe subconsciously, something like this 
even before that. Oh yeah, I believe he w- I believe he was working on it. He just was he felt stuck. He he couldn't crack he I think he was writing it and then had to do a new draft after 9/11 and added a bunch of stuff. Yes, but what I mean is that I think he was even before he started writing, I think he had a subconscious idea that he was going to do something that wasn't overtly science fictional uh, because um, I I interviewed him for Spike magazine for All Tomorrow's Party, the book before this, and I reread that just to see if there was anything interesting in it. And I found a quote where he said, and bear in mind, this was, you know, when he was promoting his last book, so long before he started writing this one, and he specifically said that Laney's node spotter function in Idoru is a sort of metaphor, this is a quote, is a sort of metaphor for whatever it is that I actually do. There are bits of the literal future right here, right now, if you know how to look for them. Hmm. And I think in the context of what he then wrote following, you know, at the time, of course, I had no idea how significant that was. But looking back now, it's like, oh, maybe he subconsciously had some idea that, like, there's no need to project into a dystopian future, 50 years in the future or whatever, to analyse the human condition in that kind of light and in the effect of technology on the human, uh, human interactions and emotional conditions. Well, that's another one of Gibson's iterative themes, because that comes out in the cyberspace trilogy, too, the ability to uh, sort of, again, untether yourself from linear reality and see and see the bigger patterns and see where things are headed. Like you said, Laney's node spotting, which I think is like one of the most fascinating parts of all tomorrow's parties, especially when he connects with the other node spotter. He reminds me strongly of Big End. And, <laughs> and then the whole point to the Blue Ant trilogy is you find out that Big End is trying very hard to um, develop and amplify his ability to actually... To do reach. just that, but he well, can't do it. Yeah. Well, he he can't until he can, which is, you know, at the very end of the trilogy. But like the... The whole point to Big End through all three of the Blue Ant books is what he wants to do is he wants to sharpen. It's not enough for him to be able to anticipate and shape trends anymore. What he wants to do is actively change the course of the world depending on his whims. And and like that's what he's kind of quietly working for all the way through the trilogy. So I, I enjoy like... I enjoy that Gibson has a couple of themes he comes back to over and over again in his trilogies and embroiders them. And, and like you pointed out, that the idea of node spotting or being able to discern patterns and then be like, okay, I, I know what this pattern is. How can I use it? I also find it interesting. Case is the daughter of two pattern recognition people because that was the whole point to win being, you know, win being in, in intelligence was his his entire life was all about yeah yeah so like it's you know signal intelligence. The idea there is you're 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 trying to find patterns as a as a CIA person as a spy whatever it is as an analyst you are um, searching for the the signal and the noise too. And then the mother is obviously now obsessed with it um, after her husband died. Um, we'll get back to her dad when we talk about the other books because there is something interesting there um i wanted to mention so i mentioned that the um the uh the fetish footage forum thing which is a would now just be the footage subreddit but it was, it was an internet message board I, I think this is one of those examples where uh, gibson is talking about things that did exist in that era but uh, one of the nice things about gibson is that he he spots he picks out the right things he uh, he even from the present day he is picking out the the kind of right things and and um there there are some you know we live in an era now where it's a little more obvious about like we have friends who we've never met in person and we <laughs> only talk to them by typing messages on a message board. But back then it was a little more uh, uh, kind of unlikely for people to, to think that way. 
But the one that really gets me is that the footage, if we could talk about the footage a little bit, the idea of this, this randomly dropped uh, little video clips and how people are trying to come up with, uh, you know, charts about like, is it part of a narrative and how does it go? And do you take it as it's released or do you, you know, do you renumber them? And is there th- are things we can glean? And, and uh, Kate ends up finding somebody who can watermark them and uh, discover that there is actually a watermark that gives you more information about them. And I feel, I feel like... Um, this prefigures a bunch of things in internet culture, but most uh, specifically, it struck me as like it's it's memes. Like this is a yeah. meme generator uh, in the modern sense of of what a meme is that's going on here. And I I just uh you know isn't it just like William Gibson to write a book in two thousand in the early two thousands that is set in the early two thousands and yet still showing that he is pretty good at prefiguring what stuff is going to be important in the future because i think he did it with with the footage the footage feels like a a very modern idea to me a very like a very 2019 idea from 2003 i could see see there being an instagram stream at this point where somebody just releases a sequence of videos and you're all oh my god what does it all mean (laughs) what it reminded me at the time was viral args like i love bees yes alternative reality uh, games yeah totally This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Water Cooler Trivia. The people at Water Cooler Trivia are here to spruce up your life at the office. They send weekly quizzes by email to you and your colleagues to spark some good spirited competition. It's quick to set up, so in no time at all, you'll be discovering your coworkers' secret knowledge and showing off your own. Now, here's how it works. First, you create a group and choose your quiz categories and difficulty level. Then, you'll get a custom link to share with your colleagues so they can sign up. Anyone who signs up will get a quiz in their inbox every Monday, and you'll all get weekly results in your inbox, so things might get a little competitive. Water cooler trivia is brightening Mondays, who which Garfield hates, by the way, so uh, you might too. For people all over the world, Mondays are better with water cooler trivia. International consulting firms, tiny tech startups, national retailers, you can create a group for your team today. There's a free trial, no credit card required. So let's test this out. Here is a water cooler trivia question for you. A 2011 film features an early scene set in Tonsberg, Norway, in the year 695. What is the four-letter name of this film? Do you know it? Head to watercoolertrivia.com slash incomparable. You'll get a two-month free trial. That's eight weeks of totally free office fun watercoolertrivia.com slash incomparable go there now thank you to watercooler trivia for their support of the incomparable the answer is thor the thing about the footage for me is that i i kind of disagree with you a little in that i find it to be one of the sort of charmingly naive Hmm. bits of the novel because and I, i say this just from and monty i'm sure you've got some experience of this as well from the point of view of somebody who's put out games with this kind of secret hidden things in them that mm-hmm. you think, oh, that'll take people months to figure <laughs> out. And it doesn't. Yep. It really doesn't. Within like 48 hours, it is all oh, over yeah. the internet. Somebody has figured it out. They've hacked their way into, you know, it's the idea that the footage could remain unsolved well, for this long. I think long. what justifies it in this case is that not everybody knows about it yet. There's still just oh, sure, the one forum. Sure, but the but the people who do are very very tech savvy. Yeah, but you see, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you about this because I think I think the book shows that 
every new piece of footage is devoured and analyzed instantly. It really does remind me of modern culture of an episode of a TV show drops and everybody solves the mystery immediately. <laughs> Do you all remember when AI came out, there was like a game online that went with it. I want to call it Cloudbusters, where it was a puzzle solving game. There was a website. It was collaborative. And although the movie AI kind of sank for, for reasons here and there, like... <laughs> <laughs> like quality. <laughs> what always intrigued me was the fact that whoever was responsible for the game in the community managed to actually create an, an entire network of online puzzle solvers who were still obsessed with filling in all of the backstory and figuring and figuring this stuff out. And that came out just about the same time, like a year before pattern recognition. So I also wonder like how much time William Gibson might have spent lurking on online forums or, um, you know, watching recap culture, which was another thing that was kind of on the rise at the time too, where people were, oh, this, this TV show happened last night. Let's Let's pick apart every frame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's probably uh, almost certainly a part of it. As I say, the thing, don't get me wrong, without the footage, there's no story. And, you know, I understand that the, the, at that time you could imagine this sort of thing happening. I just, looking back on it from a modern perspective, I, as I say, I find it kind of delightfully naive, this idea that it would be up there for months and months and nobody would have yet tracked down you yeah. know, that it would take somebody of Big N's enormous resources to be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, I, I don't agree. Um, I think that the whole point of the footage is that the, the whole puzzle isn't there and that the only way that the, the case gets cracked is that uh, through basically chance, case has the ability to get somebody in the intelligence world to crack it, which I right. suppose you could argue that that in our modern society, somebody who's got the access to the intelligence service would um, misuse it and <laughs> use it to crack the footage anyway. <laughs> but that's the argument is that literally only like the US, only the NSA can figure out where the footage comes from and everybody else is left guessing and that there isn't a solvable mystery beyond the watermark. Everything else is still in pieces. And I like that there are, because they do have the complete, um, you know, all the different arguments about like are you a person who believes that the footage is ordered this way and that way and there's no way to oh, prove sure. it is so it everybody's work or is it still being made right everybody's analyzed yeah, yeah. every little bit of it and come up with all the possibilities which i feel like mirrors what people would do today the difference is that it's not solvable yet unless you have a cia supercomputer in, well, in the even book. if it is solved you still you would still get people violently arguing <laughs> sure. about it like, disagreeing i direct you yes. to <laughs> let's say westworld discussion forums what i found <laughs> odd was I don't think we ever got a feel for what Case thought about the footage. We know that she is obsessed with it, but she only we only get descriptions of some people think they're out of order and other people think this. I think we get a couple of emotional reactions to it from her, but but not many, you're right. I feel like the whole point to Case is that she's removed from her emotions precisely because mm -hmm. of the grief. Like in some ways her work is easier for her now because she's numb and she's got that distancing effect to it and i think in other ways um bear in mind she's raised by somebody who does sigint and 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 somebody who is a hippie clairvoyant wannabe and i think what that's it's taught her to look at the world in terms of pattern recognition period and so this is what she does is whenever she's confronted with something it's how are people reacting to it xyz and then it's a way for her to think around how she feels about it because she's she's avoidant. I'm, I mean, this is kind of one of the themes through the book is that she doesn't like to feel things because feeling things is powerful and scary and awful. And, you know, that's why when you have that scene at the end where she does have that cathartic breakdown, you know, with the grief, um, 
and it indicates that it's bigger than personal grief. Like this represents the 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 culmination of Case's journey through the book. I think there's also the aspect that part of the reason she's so fascinated by the footage is because it it isn't what she does for her day job. You know, it doesn't appear to be marketed or, you know, sort of deliberately spread. And that's part of her fascination with it. And so maybe that ties in, as you said, to her reluctance to be emotional about it because her job is all about an emotional, visceral reaction to brands or logos or slogans or whatever. So, you know, there's a kind of there's a balance there as well. This book also has the feeling of being a generational argument, um, or if not a generational argument, somebody in middle age acknowledging um, generational shifts in perspective. Because again, Case, who I think is probably Gen X, is defined by her um, adversarial relationship to Mark. Like it's adversarial in the sense that she's not, she doesn't, she doesn't love it. Like she doesn't love branding, but she's good at pattern recognition. Um, she's quintessentially Gen X with that whole, I'm, I'm ambivalent towards selling out. I have an adversarial relationship to being marketed to. I'm not engaged because that way lies madness. And she's raised by two baby boomers, one of whom represents the, the military industrial complex and the Cold War mentality. And the other one who is the manifestation of like mystic hippie crap. And, <laughs> um, and I feel like this book is basically Gibson pointing out that you can have, uh, generational factors that shape your worldview but there's always going to be some interplay like you know she she has to rely on cold war technology and cold war relationships to unlock something that bedevils her and her generation and then later over the course of the whole blue ant trilogy you see that these these cold warrior types who are still in the shadows are just as capable as understanding the power of viral marketing and and uh by this point, millennial stunt work and and and, go, and going that way. So I th- I think that's another thing that Gibson's doing through the course of the book and then later through the series is is trying to ask what are the generational mindsets and legacies that people leave one another and how do they interact and what gets made what gets made from the collisions. I want to mention um, some of the other characters in this book that are that strike me as being very Gibsonian characters, which is funny because they're present day characters, but they I feel like they have William Gibson novel analogs, right? So we have we. We have uh, we have Parker Boy, who is Case's online friend, who we end up uh, we end up seeing later. But he just strikes me as being a little bit in the uh, helpful, uh, friendly hacker mode. As is Boon Chu, who is a uh, a, a computer specialist who was assigned to her. Um, and then really Gibsonian characters, Voitech uh, yes. and Hobbs. <laughs> Yeah. Who are uh, Boytek is the, is uh, selling antique calculators so that he can buy Sinclair ZX eighty one computers, and uh, Hobbs <laughs> is the uh, is the former NSA cryptographer who ends up being the lead that gets uh, case the footage analyzed. Yeah, Baranov, the ex NSA guy who now lives in a caravan. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh my <laughs> god. I, mean, I love those scenes. They're also very Gibsonian. It's so Gibsonian. I mean, like you could have a kind of weird post-apocalyptic future or you could just go uh to a uh basically a street market with Voitech and then follow that up by going out into the countryside to a dilapidated uh caravan uh where Hobbes lives and it's you might as well be in the apocalypse in both bo- or a science fiction novel in both of those scenes even though they're not and I I that that I really they're not like the most important characters in the book but they add so much spice to have Voitech especially is like his, even his name Voitech he sounds like a science 
science fiction term, but it's just a Polish guy who is setting up an art project yeah. with old computers. It's great. Oh, come on. No one sees the shades of Adoro between Taki and Judy. <laughs> yep. Well, Judy like, is one of my favorites. Oh my God, I love her arc. <laughs> I like Wojtek a lot because he doesn't have any agenda and he always seems pretty cheerful when he shows up. He's just happy to help things along and... You know, this is kind of a spy thriller in a way, and I like being relaxed when a character is on screen. Even Parker Boy, I don't trust because mm-hmm. Parker Boy, a lot of his a lot of his character that we're given is in, in the form of which people on the forum he hates the most, right? Which is a very accurate description of forum culture. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, Monty, yeah. you've described the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Dorotea Benedetti oh. is uh, cases nemesis i mean she's basically the villain of the story but in a in a surprising okay so insofar as there is a villain yeah it's like how wind is the is the villain of kiki's delivery service right it's like there's really not a villain um but she is a you know she she is kind of unpleasant in the marketing meeting where she's supposed to approve or disapprove of one of dorotea's uh company's marketing messages which she disapproves of um and then we learn later that dorotea has basically ruined cases buzzricks and jacket as because she's a jerk um mm-hmm. and uh and so but but it goes beyond that right where it turns out and this is one of those i the reason i was hesitating earlier is like this is i would say I think I think Dorotea is not a, a character that makes sense if you try to unravel it because she is way too coincidentally involved in mm. the branding exercise and has been on the f- footage forums for all this time. And she turns the big As reveal is, yeah. is that she mm-hmm. is the person that everybody hates on the footage forums. <laughs> Um, and and uh, in the end, she ends up being part of the climax of the story in Russia. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that all holds together, <laughs> but it is like it it is funny in the moment because every time she comes back, you're like, oh, I hate her so much, and she's back now. Uh, and that that part is is fun. It does through her imaginations. It does lead to one of my favorite things that is also I, I'm not sure holds together in the book, which is when Case comes back to uh, Damien's apartment that she's staying in while she's in London. And and she goes on uh, to, to search on the forums, and she finds that in the browser history, there's a there's a porn site that wasn't mm-hmm. there before, and this is what leads her to realize that somebody has broken into to the flat while she was out, and badly and sloppily. And, I feel and like, then, and, yes. and then she hits redial on the phone and gets Dorothea on the phone, and that's the part that gets me is like the aspect of having your personal space invaded. You're a lonely person in a different city in one of these empty spaces that an international travel lives in and then it's violated I feel like there's a lot of kind of a visceral feeling I get from that but mm-hmm. really even though Gibson later hangs a lantern on it that the people who broke in were idiots it's still like <laughs> you broke in to get stuff out of a, an apartment and you used their phone and you used the internet to watch porn you unwound with a few seconds of porn you took off it's like come <laughs> on man like yeah. it's yeah it's not my favorite to be fair the, the phone thing's unforgivable but web browser did was browser history that what you know the knowledge yes. of it was it that yes. widespread at the 2002? time? Two thousand two, absolutely. Like uh, this isn't the okay. dawn okay. of the internet. Like Slashdot has been around for five years at this point. What burglar breaks into a house on a burgling mission and is like, you know what? Let's stop and look at a porn page for and, a couple minutes. He, yeah, he was putting a keylogger <laughs> on the computer. Oh no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so okay, he enough. knows yeah. that. Whoever, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing. So since Dorotea is a corporate spy, like this is the thing about her is is she's 
kind of the flip case in the sense that she's picked up um, Wynn's espionage and spy skills, and she's got some of Case's corporate skills. So there, there's that mirror image thing. But my guess with the porn is it's, it's meant to creep somebody out if they see it, like, because everything about this unnerves Case. And so this is this is Dorothea doing some psyops. But but it's, it's Dorothea's assistants who are not as competent as Dorothea. No, it's a bit of headcanon. <laughs> what Baker's belief is later, she's like, yeah, I just hired a graduate student to write all that stuff and keep t- track of y'all. I'm like, really? Really? Did you have time to read internet forums on top of that? Because that's a real time waster. You can't be like a corporate espionage spy if you're also spending 18 hours a day talking about what 50 seconds of footage means. Yeah. <laughs> or, or reading through what someone else wrote about 18 seconds of footage. So, Well, let me ask you this. Actually, let me, let me ask Jason this. How long was that uh, podcast about uh, episode seven's trailer? Uh, it was it was very long. I don't remember exactly what. <laughs> <laughs> so people could go pretty deep on a few seconds of footage if they no, really I, wanted. I, I don't doubt that capacity. What I doubt is Dorotea's capacity to be a corporate espionage mastermind and um, pulling the strings of somebody who's typing for her on the internet and also holding down a creative professional job at but, the but same she time. She hired like, graduate students to do this. She didn't read everything he wrote or she wrote. She just got to press us. Yeah. All right, because I'm like, I want her. I want her time management skills. Is what I'm. Saying. I just, that's a lot. A <laughs> lot of uh, coincidences with because mm-hmm. I, I like I like how she's a dislikable character who you kind of pity but don't don't really at the end. I, I assume she's going to get killed by Russians, like probably off, off screen. That's, probably, that's my- <laughs> but she is she is un, unrealistic in the sense that it's hard hard to believe that a person that Case knows from the forums and a client that she's dealing with and involved in this whole you know. Uh, thing that happens in Russia is like mm, that's that's a uh, law of economy of characters there I guess like let's just have all of the other things be Dorotea. Well, let me mention the the audio books. I don't know if anybody else listened to them, mm. but the audio book of this is one um, Shelley Frazier, and her voice for Dorotea is excellent. She do a full on Italian. Uh, oh yes, excellent. <laughs> oh yes, nice. Nice. Everybody has their own accent. Everybody has their own voice. But Dorotea is perfection. One of the things about Gibson that um, I think I forget about, and then I start reading him, and I and I'm instantly remember is um, we can talk about him being kind of a cool finder himself and all of that. But and his plots are a little bit ramshackle at times. But he is such a good writer. Every time oh, yeah. I start reading a Gibson novel, I am just <sighs> amazed at his at his use of language. It is oh, the density painful. of prose is amazing. The telling details. I love all of the little details or reactions that he throws in because it's just such beautiful texture. I've got a sentence that I highlighted just because I really loved the use of adverbs. Mm. Have you tried those pills from New Zealand? Stone Street asks. <laughs> Case remembers that his American wife, once the ingenue in a short-lived X-Files clone, is the creator of an apparently successful line of vaguely homeopathic beauty products. Yes. Vaguely homeopathic. <laughs> Apparently successful is just the, yeah. the, the shade. I love it so much. The verbifying of nouns that he does as well, like oh, in yeah. all of his books. But in this one, there's quite a few instances of it. And my favorite of that is when he uh, describes an expressway as being blade runnered by half a century of use and pollution. <laughs> oh, yes. I've got one. There, there's, there's a line in here too. It's also, yeah, I, I highlighted the blade runner thing because she this book references Ridley or Blade Runner like on three separate occasions. And I mm. thought to myself, 
either he watched that movie while he was writing this book and left an indelible impression, or this is kind of a sly callback to the whole <laughs> cyberpunk um, uh, I neuromancer, yeah. neuromancer aesthetic that he's done. Yeah, he's always put next to Blade Runner because Neuromancer and Blade Runner kind of define yeah, the entire basically aesthetic. basically changed the world. Mm-hmm. And, and when he saw Blade Runner, he was in the middle of writing Neuromancer, and he said he wasn't sure if he could be able to continue. Because mm-hmm. yeah. right, he, he said, you've, you've, you've filmed what's in my head. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, oh, we should talk about the last portion of this book. I think we may have some disagreement about this, but my mm. my least favorite part of this book is, uh, I think, in the segment that where where uh, Case goes to Russia. Um, it is there's some good stuff in there, but it is uh, a, a real change. It, you do get the sense that this is the book needing to end, and therefore we have or the third act. You could call it that if you like. She goes to Moscow. She meets with <laughs> Stella, who it turns out is the uh, is basically the twin sister of the creator of the footage, and she's also sort of the distributor and producer of the footage. But her sister does the work. Her sister was uh, they're 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 um, the children of an of a, a Russian mob oligarch guy basically mm-hmm. and uh in an assassination attempt her sister was damaged brain damaged and is uh and uh but can ex- can express herself when she's sitting in front of the monitors in the editing bay she was a film student and she can do that and she is creating the footage and they have it turns out uh there's a whole like private prison in russia mm-hmm. that where everybody gets trained <laughs> to do cgi to render, render farms. it's a yeah. render farm it's a render farm for for high performing prisoners <laughs> it's a metaphor for modern game development i i think so and modern special effects uh, houses actually i actually feel like the rush I, I i feel like the russian part like on a narrative level you spend a lot of time going really Really, especially like when when Case gets roofied and then has a violent freakout, and then you know well, there's the escape sequence, from that which prison is and then gets taken back to it. And yeah, I I love the Russia bit up until the prison. I have no problem with the mafia and Stella and all of that. But the, as soon as she gets taken to the prison and escapes, mm-hmm. it starts to lose me. I love the note about the food being really good. For some reason, that <laughs> just really entertains me. That she took a moment to think. Actually, this is really good soup. <laughs> oh well, I still got to escape. Like I feel like I feel like narratively speaking, it kind of all falls apart. But I feel like Gibson is kind of giving us a look at the future with, hey, if you like a society where there's unchecked amounts of wealth and only the lightest of government supervision, this is what happens. People get imprisoned in render farms if they're the right kind of felon. Um, lunatic things happen in bars. Children being blown up is just a completely acceptable part of life. And, you know, it's it's uncomfortable to read that right now. It is also a way for him to demonstrate how if you have enough, you know, no matter whether you're in the past, the present, the future, if you have enough wealth, the laws you know, the little people laws do not apply to Right. Him. He's always had that. Right, which is a theme throughout his work. And one of the things you were talking about, his his rich person making anonymous outsider art thing that he does in several of his books. Another thing that's very common, possibly even more common, is the idea that somebody who's really struggling is suddenly given incredible access and money to solve a mystery for their patron. Right. And the first thing they do is go out and spend all that money on all the kit and clothes <laughs> that they always wanted. But I think that's a really interesting contrast to the end of the book where Case kind of turns her back on that. She mm-hmm. sees the sort of logical extension yes. of that with these two rich men basically carving up the world with between them with no uh, regard whatsoever for, you know, normal people's law and just turns her back on it and says, actually, no, maybe not. 
I really like the tension when she goes to Moscow and she meets with Stella and you're like, who is she? What is the story here? And she, t- she reveals the story and the, the, it's tense. Like, you know, something bad could happen at any moment. She, t- she ends up, um, going to the place where, um, where Nora works and that is, you know, and it's like they, they used to have parties there and now it's and now it's where she does all of her work. And that's creepy and interesting and strange. But, yeah, then then she gets drugged and goes to prison and escapes and then a helicopter finds her. And then there are all the dinners with the with the rich oligarchs and and stuff. And, you know, it, it it's one of those like, look, the plot is over now. It's done. We're done. <laughs> kind of moments i feel like the norris i feel like the norris stuff is a little too explicitly on the nose because you're like nose, yeah. oh, oh this this person with massive brain damage is busy her old person her old personality is gone she's got a new one so she takes all of her old film school footage and now edits it down so it's just radical fragmented incoherent and unknowable just like she is and you're like wow that's a that's a that's a, a whole lot of that's that's metaphor 101 is what that is <laughs> I don't need to look real hard for that pattern. Um, <laughs> so so that's a little, I wouldn't call it a complaint. I just feel like it's a little pat. It seems, again, this comes back to Gibson's always been really interested in uh, the power of other people's creations to move people to emotional reactions. And and so this is this is thing that pops up again. And I was reminded very much of the end of um, Count Zero yeah. and that subplot. Yes, uh, uh, lots of creations have emotional reactions from other people. Like if you take the original Michelin Man and tape him to somebody's door, you never know what might happen. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so <laughs> creepy. Never, never know. <laughs> that's, yeah. That thing was probably really valuable. Probably was. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The other two books in this Blue Ant trilogy are not... As good are not as good, although <laughs> oh, they, they aren't. I I think they're good. They're not bad. They're not. They're bad. not as read by me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I like them both. I just don't like them as much as pattern recognition, which is right, that's my what I'm favorite. saying. Yeah, yeah. I, they're not bad. They're just not as good as this. I love zero history, actually. I, I really find that a very satisfying ending to this trilogy. Yeah, I, I so the reason I bring them up, in addition, if we've kind of pique the interest of anybody out there who has not who has not read pattern recognition like these books don't need i mean they, you you should read them all because they're all good and i think that's my my big argument here is that if you all heard about gibson and maybe you read the sprawl trilogy or maybe you didn't like here's a trilogy of books that are set in the you know early 21st century and that are very good and are are not really science fiction but they're kind of they read like science fiction, and um, I think they're all good. I wanted to mention them. Well, they're also not adventure books in the way that the Sprawl trilogy was. Like, the Sprawl trilogy still exactly. had, and the uh, Virtual Light, you know, the Bridge trilogy to yeah. an extent, still had that kind of feeling of adventure novels. And that's not to knock them at all, you know, but they these books do not have that feeling. They're very much more about somebody moving through a space and the experience of that rather than plot 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 the end of the bridge trilogy and has has the bay bridge on fire and uh some poor node spotter in a tokyo subway box uh changing the course of human history whereas the end of the blue ant trilogy has somebody 
piloting a blimp while <laughs> while while a mildly claustrophobic drummer manages to find the world's most petulant computer programmer. So yeah, that hmm. the scope of, I mean, of things on something. fire and guns is just completely different. Now, I, I mentioned these two these two books, Spook Country and Zero History, also to say that they do have links other than Big End and the ones that are the most fascinating. There is a character in Zero History who is strongly suggested to be Case Pollard. And it's one of those moments that I really like where you're reading a book not expecting there to be a link and then you see it and you're like, wait a second. I just read another series where it's like there were like a couple characters from another book uh, suddenly appear and I'm like, okay, so I guess we're getting the band back together and this, and I didn't expect yeah. it. And they never say that it's Case Pollard, but it seems very clear that, that it's her. They lay down so many clues. Like, her husband's a music producer, yeah. and they're in Chicago. One of the things that she makes is a long black jersey that can be worn as a skirt mm-hmm. or a, a dress. Yeah, she's making her it's... own uh, brandless brand of, of uh, fashion now, which is also... She's trying to subvert Big N's marketing because yeah. she understands it inside and out she worked for big end at mm-hmm. one point yeah no, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's not case in the same way that molly millions is not exactly. sally shears you know it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, and then the other thing that i want to mention is there is also uh, a an old spy who is not given a name mm. who appears and, uh, he's man. just the old man and that is also strongly suggested that he perhaps is case's father and he didn't mm. die in yeah. 9-11 after all, but it's just there for you to basically, you can do your pattern recognition if you want. You can mm-hmm. see the signal in the noise if you want to believe that that this is what happens. But it's not explicitly said by Gibson, which I think is the right call. I kind of like it. That I, this is the That's the kind of interconnectedness that I kind of like, where it's like it's there as a little bonus and you can judge it and uh, make your own determinations and then he kind of walks away and doesn't give you any more information and I, I like that about it. I like that Voitech pops up again in Zero History. Yeah, it's great. I mean, they're interconnected yeah. but incredibly loosely they have different, you know, different protagonists mm-hmm. and it's Hollis Henry in the in the the next two and in the first one it's Case and it's just like they're 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 different books but they're sharing a world and they're sharing big end and uh and I I like all three of them but Pattern Recognition is the one that just stands out as the as the tops yeah. and, which is why I wanted us to to review it. I really feel like you could read all three and you end up with what is effectively a primer on retail consumer spending and social media for like the last 10 years. Like there, there, somebody's always dropping something where you look around the world you're like, oh, it all makes sense. <laughs> Everything from the, the flattening out of trends to the flattening out of bohemias to moving away from a shared sense of reality to increasingly fragmented and manipulated senses of what, of, of, of what a culture is. It's all... It's it's these books are worth reading if you want basically if you want to understand the mindset of of um, of a lot of industry mover and shakers across a lot of different industries right now. Well, and I think that ties into in a way to what Jason was saying about the kind of subtle hints that he puts you know in other books to imply that characters might be the same people. And he's one of the reasons that I love Gibson's writing style so much is that he has a way of making you feel that what you're reading is just like on the cutting edge of your awareness and it's this secret world that you've always been searching for and and he's able to articulate it but not in a way that you can grasp it exactly it's still kind of out of your reach um and i think part of that comes into what you were saying about him being able to identify these you know and look forward 
to what will happen, you know, 10 years in our past, but 10 years in his future. He's so good at spotting, like Jason said, the right things about the present that are going to matter in the future. And I think that's just one of the things that makes his work so compelling. On the other hand, there's a spot where somebody in this book says, I hear they actually eat raw fish, which (laughs) (laughs) really dated it for me because I'm, Mm. I know I'm in Seattle, but come on. Yeah. Yeah, That's Parker boy in the, in Chicago, middle-aged white guy, as he calls himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I realize that, but yeah, well, (laughs) <laughs> well, I wonder if it's I wonder if it's a generational I I didn't have sushi until my 20s because it was just not something you you ate while growing up in the American South. I think maybe it's harder um to not know what sushi is now than than even <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I don't think you would say yeah, it in yeah. 2019. Yeah. I'll yeah. accept 20 it in years ago in the Midwest as a as a middle-aged person maybe. On the other hand, he is very obsessed with researching things and knows a lot about Japan mm. e- even before he says that. It's true. It just stuck I wonder out. if I wonder if that comment was supposed to be flippant, where he's supposed to. I hear they like this is him poking fun at the exoticism of of her flying around. I don't know. It kind of doesn't look like it, Anthony. Um, I uh, maybe you appreciate this. I don't know, but I appreciate having having visited the United Kingdom uh, several times. I really enjoy her description of it as the mirror world because it is this feeling that you get where it's like we speak the same language and yet a lot of the details are just not quite right. Um, And I I thought that her referring to it, Case referring to it as a mirror world and continuing to riff on like, oh, well, here's the mirror world plug and here's the mirror world doorknob or whatever it is like that. They're all just a little bit off. I really, I enjoyed that. I thought that that was a a very good way, uh, talking about being the loneliness of an international traveler, a good way to describe that mild disconnect you feel when you go to a different country and stuff doesn't work quite quite right i liked it so hello from the mirror world i guess no i i agree completely uh i'm not sure how true that is if it's more or less true now uh it certainly feels like it was true then when the book was Uh written but uh, and you know another aspect of this book is talking about monoculture right um it's certainly less true now than it was then but i think there's still things like your like light switches mm -hmm. and and dishwashers and 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 electrical plugs and things that are just not but (laughs) (laughs) But this is another thing that gibson's really good at is describing foreign places in a really accurate observant and visceral manner that does make you feel as if you're there like his descriptions of tokyo in this book are i I think i read this book before i'd first been to tokyo and having now been they're absolutely on the money like it's incredible um and i was also uh, i did laugh at when he talks about uh when he she lands in russia I think it's when she lands in mm-hmm. Russia and is driven. And she says, she remarks that the concept of lanes, traffic lanes appears to mm-hmm. be fluid. Yes. That <laughs> really made me laugh because a few months ago I was in Kazakhstan, which of course used to be part of the Soviet Union. And that's exactly the feeling I had. I was like, oh, so traffic lanes here are just kind of advisory then. They don't really matter. The idea that, um, again, the loneliness of the international traveler, the idea of like, what are your manners of conveyance? So in Russia, it it very much sticks with you like it's she's in a car. She's in a like the private car takes her here and there and and everywhere. Um, But in other places, like I I, it's a good way of doing that travelogue kind of feeling. Um, She's isolated and alone in her little private space. But then she walks out into the world and there's the she goes to the bustling, you know, the public market in London and other places she goes and 
then in in Tokyo when she goes out and you really get that contrast where now she's you know arguably still alone but she is in this throng right, you're still alone yeah. uh, of people around her and and you go from kind of a um really limited amount of stimuli to this kind of enormous just wash of uh, of information and then and the prose takes you along with that too it's great it's it's a you're it was never a more alone than on the london tube because you know there's just there's no eye contact nobody talks uh, oh, it sounds like a it's, dream if you've no if you've only ever traveled on u.s subways the tube is very very different there is no social interaction going on there whatsoever <laughs> i love it i love it so much <laughs> You're supposed to socially interact on U.S. subways? Not New York. Well, people, every time I go to New York, yeah, God, you can't shut them up. Well, if I can mention a couple of things. One of my favorite quotes, roughly halfway through, Case puts the card face down on the trestle table and signs its version back. Something seems to clunk heavily at the rear of her ethical universe. It was like right after that was when she started ordering people around, you know, call up. Uh, Blue Ant Japan, get me an MA1. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so on, on one end, she had very little personal interactions, mm-hmm. but she had the pattern recognition. But throughout the book, she becomes more and more a normal, quote unquote, worker and loses the pattern recognition, I think, by the end, but also has a lot more friends. That mm-hmm. seems to be the breaking point right there where she signs that credit card. Yeah, I d- definitely have that feeling throughout where I'm worried I'm worried that she's going to um, you know, completely lose all of her powers and her entire livelihood, but you you do get that sense that at the end she is um disconnecting. She's like I'm I'm out of here. I'm not going to play this. I'm not going to play by these rules anymore. I but after making the after signing the card and agreeing to work for Big End, which her initial thought is no, 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 no. I can't do that. I can't do that. But then the the solving the mystery of the footage is too great a temptation for her. It's such a great metaphor for selling out. <laughs> I put this one into a, a couple of books that I always read. That it's people from the 20th century looking at the 21st century and trying to figure it out. The other two being. Um, Rainbow's End by Verna Vingi mm-hmm. and both Reemd and Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of travel logging in those two. Yeah, well, science fiction writers choosing to write about the present day is a fascinating. I, I love, I love it. Like, I love when that happens, right? Because it's you're, they're taking their extrapolation techniques and their kind of like vision of how people are are you know where the world is going culturally and technologically and applying it to ourselves, which is like a little uncomfortable at times, but in yeah. a good way. I well, think. with Neil Stevenson, especially, I feel like it's the same as Gibson, where. You could keep writing about the future, but you're writing about the future that's so close that it keeps passing what you wrote about in your last book. So mm-hmm. let's write about the present. Yeah, the danger of writing near near future fiction is always that, yeah, it'll date so quickly and you'll be overtaken. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead, but if you're Gibson and you can pick it out, pick the right pieces out, then then you can make it. You can make it work. I feel that we should call out a Zeppelin reference in this book. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. uh, page 10. Case looks away from Dorotea and the envelope, noting that a great many 90s pounds had once been lavished on this third-floor meeting room, with its convexly curving walls of wood, suggesting the first-class lounge of a transatlantic Zeppelin. Yeah! There you go, yay! <laughs> I've seen meeting rooms like that, and really all you think about when you're in it is, 
you sure spent a lot on this, huh? Oh my gosh, that that whole meeting reminds me a lot of when I worked for a, a, a web design startup in the '90s, and you had these <laughs> these weird these weird corporate kabuki moves where people would bring up portfolios, and everybody had very specific ways of dressing. Like my boss always had this really specific set of Prada khakis he uh, khakis he'd wear to them. It was wild. <laughs> the the Zeppelin, I at least read it this way that the the meeting room in London mm-hmm. that's like the first class lounge of a transatlantic Zeppelin, it's all part of the mirror world. Monty, <laughs> the mirror world. In the mirror world, there is Zeppelin lounges. That's absolutely. Mirror universes usually have Zeppelins. Uh-huh. You're right. I rest my case. I rest my case. Anything else before we go? I just wanted to remark that uh, it's. I've read this book several times, but it had been a few years since I last read it, and I I still enjoyed it as much as ever. However, this time around, I was also squirming a certain amount because I was almost embarrassed to realize how much of an influence on me this specific book has had. (laughs) Like, I I have never denied that Gibson is a very influential writer for me. Like, I've never made any bones about that. But I hadn't Mm -hmm. realized until I reread it, this specific book Uh, like mm-hmm. its fingerprints are all over my last novel. And mm-hmm. I just, I hadn't realized. And I was like, oh my, like I say, I was squirming with embarrassment. <laughs> the the novel that I keep trying to uh, get, finish my rewrite of is, um, I would say shamelessly attempting to be a shadow of a vision of a portion of pattern recognition. But it's very clearly. <laughs> oh, like, I want to read it now. All of a sudden I'm really into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's oh, it's wait. no, it's every time I read. Honestly, um, and this is going to sound really kind of hokey, but every time I read William Gibson's work, I am inspired and also terrified of uh, to, as a writer. Yeah. Right, like it makes me want to write like him, and I can't write like him, and it's very frustrating. But it, it but it makes me so enthusiastic about um, what Anthony would say about the the written word. Uh, the the one, the one thing I will say that will give you heart about that is that I I can't say how, but I have on very good authority from people who know uh, that Gibson is a relentless rewriter, and that nothing in this book was the first second third or even fourth or fifth no. draft he rewrites everything over and over yeah, what's, what's intimidating about ri- great writers is that everybody believes that the writing just comes out of them and springs out of them and then it's done and the truth is that it's a That's craft nonsense, and yeah. they, they sweat they sweat the details <laughs> and they go back later and they fix all the things that are broken and try to make it work right and and i have no doubt given the density of his prose that he he really sweats it no doubt yeah he really it's does, just yeah. so clean it's so it's good it's just so clean they're there aren't a lot of tag ends, if that makes sense. Like, you just get the sense that you're rushing along and everything yeah, is carefully thought out. That, and, that's the thing is, it's dense. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, uh, brilliant writing, but I don't want it to come across as being like a, like it's a slow go. Because for me, it's ne- Gibson, oh, no, reading it's Gibson old, is no, never no. slow. It's super smooth and easy and mm. very stylish and, and beautiful, which is a nice trick. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> and I want his I want his way of looking at the world. Like to have his writing talent would be one thing, but can you imagine being able to look at the world and, and do the node spotting like that? That to me would be Oh my gosh, I, that's amazing. I, I wish I could imagine it. If I could imagine it, I'd I'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. the trouble. <laughs> that is. That's the trick. Yeah. Well, uh, it was really fun to revisit pattern recognition after a, mm-hmm. a few years. So um 
And I hope if you haven't read it yet, you will read it now, having listened to this. Or if you read it a while ago, maybe you should revisit it and the whole Blue Ant trilogy. Um, I would like to thank my panelists for talking about it with me on this episode. Fred Keish, thank you for being here. Thank you. And I'm about to sit down for some chicken korma. Wojtek <laughs> uh, approves, I think. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser, thank you. Thank you for having me. I love this. Monty Ashley, thank you. Please refer to me as as purely functional and iconic a garment as the previous century produced. Mm. All right. Next up for next time. And Anthony Johnston, thank you. Thank you, Jason. I'm now off to go and bid for Stephen King's word processor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that boy. And uh, count your, your uh, Sinclair's ZX81s, too, while you're at it. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Footage. I mean, The Incomparable. Uh, we will see you next week. Next week.